right. Um, so we're, uh, this is for our uh, monthly show, Totality of Circumstances, on KBOO Portland. Uh, we air at 5.30 p.m. on the 23rd. Um, and if you wouldn't mind, could you just give us a little uh, background about yourself and how you came to be involved in this particular case? Sure. Um, so my name is Vika Safarian. I'm a lawyer in Portland, Oregon. Um, I've been a lawyer for about three and a half years. Um, as part of my work, um, I started out at the public defender's office um, where I defended people accused mostly of misdemeanors. Um, and then I started working at a local civil rights firm. Um, the name of that firm is Levy Matthew Horst. Um, so I'm an associate there and we do criminal defense. We also do civil rights work. So we sue um, government actors such as jails, prisons, and police departments for uh, violations of people's constitutional rights. Um, so uh, we came to be involved with Don't Shoot Portland because um, our firm, as well as Ashley Albee's uh, law firm and um, <clears throat> the Oregon, um, what is it, OJRC, Oregon Justice Resource Commission, I think. I think it's Recourse Center, but yeah. Some, yeah, I always get the acronym wrong, but um, they work on a lot of criminal justice reform stuff. So we had all been, um, you know, acquainted with Teresa Rayford and Don't Shoot Portland through our other work. Um, so when we started seeing um, what was happening at the protests uh, following the killing of George Floyd, um, we saw a lot of indiscriminate use of tear gas and um, so we decided to step in and talk to Teresa about filing a lawsuit. And so, and Don't Shoot Portland ended up being, um, well, so neither samurai are lawyers, which is a great place to start. <laughs> um, so, but in looking at some of the documentation that you sent, um, don't Shoot Portland, along with seven other, several other individuals, formed the sort of class that you represented in this um, complaint. Can you describe a little bit about what the first stage was of this process and then how it's developed? Yeah. Um, so in the first stage of any um, civil proceeding in court is that whoever's filing the complaint or the initiating action, whether it's a divorce case or anything like that, you file something in court saying, here's what happened, here's what we're trying to prove and accomplish. So in a civil rights case, you lay out what happened, the background of who all the different actors are, the defendants here being the city of Portland and the Multnomah County Sheriff's Office, um, and who the plaintiffs are. And um, in this case, because we represent an organization, and the class of Portlanders engaged in protests, we had to define, define our class as people engaged in uh, protests uh, against racial injustice and um, don't shoot and why don't shoot Portland has a stake in this. Um, as an organization, they have to have some kind of uh, financial and resource related stake in what's how they were harmed by the defendants. So we had to explain that. Um, and basically we filed like a 20 page summary of what was going on and our legal claims. And then that ended up getting amended to uh, a couple times 
just as things were developing because as we started suing and getting somewhere with the court the defendants changed their tactics so we amended our complaint a few times and that first complaint was um based on the indiscriminate as you said before use of tear gas and other crowd control and impact munitions on uh, portlanders engaged in um passive resistance or civil disobedience or protest and and it left it at that uh what was the outcome of that first of that first push in the courts yeah so in, on the first day that we filed the complaint which all happened very quickly um as people know you know portland saw a ton of protests throughout many months but we filed the complaint i believe it was june 6th I believe, um, when we started the action, so, or maybe even June 4th or 3rd, but it was several days after the protest started, um, and what we were seeing then was thousands of people coming out to protest, showing their solidarity, and the protests, the police were, you know, putting out announcements and everything that they were supporting the protests, but at a certain point in the night, things would shift. When it started getting dark, um, police would order people to disperse and then would unleash enormous amounts of tear gas that had everyone um, very upset, right? Because they were unleashing tear gas upon crowds of people, um, many of whom, most, the majority of whom, they didn't have any kind of suspicion or reason to use force. And the, um, the government's use of force against people is very strictly defined and limited by the constitution. So the first complaint actually was only focused on tear gas. Um, and at the same time, we also filed a motion for a restraining order, a temporary restraining order. So that was a separate filing that we did. And you have to prove that it's a immediate, there, there's need for the court to take immediate action to, um, because the defendant's actions right now are harming the plaintiff and um, the public interest weighs in favor of the court um, issuing some kind of restraining order. Um, and that's necessary because these cases take years. And I think that's a lot of the frustration that people have is that it takes a really long time for the court to figure out what's going on, to hold a hearing and to do anything. And the case is still ongoing. We're not even in the middle of the case yet. But um, because we filed that motion for a restraining order on June 6th, the court issued an order saying that, um, you know, the use of tear gas should not be used to disperse crowds and um, only shall be used when the lives of officers or other people is in danger and not on people passively resisting. I don't remember the, the specific wording of the order, but it was focused on tear gas initially. And um, do you, uh, what sort of uh, precedent is there nationally or locally for the use of a temporary restraining order to restrict police actions um yeah we we see, i don't i on to be honest with you i don't know the history of this sort of thing happening i know that the courts um the courts have power to act um to restrict um any defendant even if it's a city or a large administrative agency like the department of corrections or a prison um and that's the courts usually deal with money and money damages, but they also have this 
power of acting when there's something immediate that needs to be done and it's a higher standard we have to prove that you know they should restrain because they also they courts tend to not want to get involved in running an agency that you know they don't know about they're not experts in policing um but there is precedent i know that it happened in seattle i know especially you know in the beginning in the summer when tear gas was getting used in Colorado and in Seattle, we heard that you know the um, the district court in in Denver used a similar restraining order. Um, so it, it it does happen, and I think it there was a trend of doing this type of oversight through the courts at that time. Thank you, um, and uh, would you also be able to give us sort of a um, a rundown of the different constitutional violations that you've alleged in the complaints and how um, they relate to the use of tear gas and other munitions? Yeah. So um, the, main, um, the main violation is under the Fourth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. So the Fourth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution says that we all have rights against unreasonable searches and seizures by the government. A seizure in this case means um, taking of our bodies or our property. Um, so um, force is a seizure. And the way a seizure is defined is that it interferes with your free movement and your freedom, essentially. So um, in order to use physical force against people, um, police have to have, uh, they have to articulate um, the need for that force. And it's, there's a, there's, precedent going back to the Supreme Court, a case called Graham v. O'Connor, that says that um, essentially, you know, it, it's from the perspective of the officer there and what they knew and what threat that, that person presented to the officer, if that person was, um, you know, armed or engaging in some kind of physical um, threat to the officer, whether with a weapon or something else. Um, those considerations weigh into whether the officer ha has to have a need to use force. If not, if that person is not presenting any kind of threat to officers or others, then there's the Constitution says officers can't use force against you. And the same goes for an arrest. Um, so if they have a reason to to believe that you will be dangerous during an arrest, um, if they're if they're arresting someone they know to be armed. Um, then they can use some force, meaning like they can, you know, use several officers to grab you, to wrestle you to the ground if you're resisting. But if you are compliant and they have no reason to believe that you present any danger, they can't use force in an arrest. So all of this is part of the Fourth Amendment. And um, our argument in, these, in this case with tear gas, and we haven't talked about this, but the Portland police started using more and more um, impact munitions, which are... Um, large foam tip rubber bullets and um, also they they can be equipped with OC spray like so pepper spray the guns that shoot pepper spray bullets and also smaller bullets called FN303s that are called like people call them pepper balls and they leave like smaller bruises but the big rubber bullets leave giant bruises and connect all of these weapons they're called less lethal weapons but they all have potential to kill someone um, if shot you know, at the head or inappropriately um, at someone's, you know, organs or in any, in a circumstance that 
they shouldn't be used. Um, so what we're alleging is that with the use of tear gas on crowds, officers don't have the right. Tear gas, um, tear gas is a very is composed of many really horrible chemicals and actually not not regulated at all, manufactured overseas, um, and depending on the batch, is going to be different chemicals, but they're known to cause really horrific health effects. Um, they're even known to cause reproductive harm to people. Um, and so, you know, that is a use of force. And if that force is going to be used against several people or several hundreds of people, then our argument is the officers have to have um, a reason to be able to use that force against those people. That crowd, every single person needs to pose a threat um, against the officers or others in order to justify that use of force and to make it constitutional. Um, and the same goes for rubber bullets and FN-303s, although they're supposed to be targeted when shot from too far away or when shot inappropriately or you know sometimes shot at someone and they hit someone else and people say they're shot indiscriminately without um, being used against anyone committing any sort of crime, um, we're, say we're saying that's not lawful under the Fourth Amendment. Um, the other big um, claim in our case is a First Amendment uh, violation. So um, it, this is different. So the First Amendment protects your rights um, to free speech. Um, and of course, go the government has the right to regulate our speech. We, we can't we can't say that that right is not um, abridged or um, regulated in some way, but um, there are strict rules about that. So essentially what we're alleging is that by, by using um, indiscriminate force against crowds of specifically um, Black Lives Matter protesters, um, the government has done so uh, with an effect of chilling people's speech, meaning like people won't feel as safe and comfortable and inspired to go out and protest if they think that they will be tear gassed and potentially killed and harmed um, in a way that they can't even protect themselves by being um, perfectly, you know, just a peaceful protester. So it has an effect of chilling their speech. And also we're saying specifically that it's um, motivated by a desire to chill specific type of speech. So in our complaint, we set out um, examples of protests where right-wing or pro-fascist movements and protests have come to Portland and how differently Portland police has handled those protests by essentially working with those organizations to help them have protests where they are armed and carrying um, weapons openly and facilitating their um, their protests by closing off streets and allowing them to have that space and then um, cracking down with tear gas and impact munitions on the anti-fascist or counter protests that are going on. So th this has been a documented trend over the course of the last three years. Um, and so we set out a few examples in our complaint saying that there's a First Amendment violation here because this force is actually being used specifically against the Black Lives Matter protests to silence this type of speech and not this other type of speech in similar circumstances. 
There are several uh, glaring examples of that, as you mentioned, from the past few years. One of the ones that's mentioned in the complaint is the um, the protest at Tom McCall Waterfront Park in August of 2019. And I was there, Sam was there, um, and, and I think anybody who was there would recognize that as one of the most exceptional um, and surprising maybe is not the right word for it, uh, but the gap in the way that police were treating um, the far right protesters and the counter protesters at that specific protest was just so wide. Um, I personally witnessed several right wing protesters who were armed and being threatening and dangerous who were just ignored by the police completely. Um, so that was a really interesting, interesting portion of the complaint and and something and a thread that was continuous throughout was that these actions are rooted in racism and racism is part of the of the systemic oppression that it, we're seeing right now being carried out by the police um, and the police are it's like it's you know it's important to mention you've mentioned it but it's important to really sort of clarify that the police are not the defendants necessarily in this in this lawsuit. The city of Portland and the county of Multnomah are the defendants, um, at least. And part of the re one thing that struck me really um, profoundly while reading the complaint was that they, whether they, whether the city and the county will claim that. Um, the indiscriminate use of tear gas and ultimately uh, rubber bullets and other impact munitions, whether the indiscriminate use of tear gas was intentional, uh, by its very nature, its use is indiscriminate. And so the, the decision to acquire the tear gas, the decision to arm the police with it, and the decision to empower them to use it all re represent policy violations that uh, should be considered to be in violation of civil rights, which I thought was just really powerful phrasing of in the complaint. Yeah, that's definitely that's definitely important that we're suing the city of Portland and the county of Multnomah. And when we're um, if we were suing specific officers in this in this lawsuit. So, for example, you know, I, I've also done lawsuits on behalf of a single person who's been harmed at a protest by a specific officer. Um, that's different than what we've had to do here, which is to prove that the city is responsible that it was the the decision of policymakers to 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 use the tear gas in this way um and we have evidence of that i think people have heard that um the city and the police made the decision to arm themselves with more tear gas and more impact munitions as these protests were getting started um we also know that at these protests there's an incident command set up with an incident commander who is uh, right below, you know, the chief of police, they have complete authority over that entire protest, and they are the policymaker for the city for the actions of the city. So, um, yes, exactly, it is. It is alleging that the city is responsible for, you know, chilling and oppressing the speech of anti-racist protesters. There was one individual whose name I saw mentioned in the um, I don't know the best way to phrase it I have a note here in the contempt complaint and the in the most recent um, resolution on 
finding ruling. Sorry, I, I mentioned I wasn't a lawyer um, on the contempt case. And I don't know if you're, com we didn't discuss that uh, leading up to this interview. So I don't know if you're comfortable talking about how that came about or how that individual ended up being named in individually in this particular case. Yeah, so I'll give a little bit of a background on what happened. So um, as this case has been slowly inching along, you know, we have been trying our best as lawyers to keep track of what's going on on the ground. Um, and in the beginning, I think people were a lot more motivated and inspired to call us and tell us. And I think people have gotten more disillusioned with the process. But so essentially, still in the summer, um, in June, um, we moved for contempt of court. So contempt of court is basically when the court orders something and the defendants violate the court order, the court can find them in contempt of court and actually um, issue a remedy, like direct them to, to do something to, um, to heal or to remedy their violation. Um, so we're talking about how on June 6th, the court signed this temporary restraining order, right? Uh, restricting their use of tear gas. Then we saw them shift because there's a lot of also political stuff happening with state level and local politicians coming out against tear gas. So tear gas became disfavored because no one likes, you know, their businesses and their homes gas, which is what was happening. Um, so the police started using more and more um, these uh, rubber bullets and uh, pepper spray and pepper balls. So then we amended the restraining order so the order of the judge saying you can't do it in this way you, you can't you can't use tear gas you can't use munitions against people who are engaged in passive resistance and that's probably the most useful piece of information that like people who are going out protesting should know is that there's an order of the court that before the police can use force against people they have to be able to articulate um, a threat that that person is, is causing without speculating. Um, and so the people that are engaged in passive resistance, they cannot have tear gas or uh, these like weapons used against them. Um, and passive resistance is what it sounds like. It's, you know, if they're, if they're telling you to disperse and you're not dispersing, you're standing there, you're passively resisting. If they're, if they're shoving people with batons down the street and you start grabbing at them, that's some form of action. So we, we, so basically we, we ended up having a hearing about what happened on June 30th. Um, June 30th, there was a protest outside um, the Portland Police Association building in North Portland. Um, and on that day, um, the police pushed the protesters into um, Albina and um, further into this historically black neighborhood before gassing the crowd. Um, and so, and on, on the way during that push, um, the police, and it was Portland police, and it was also Portland State Police, or Oregon State Police, um, they were using um, the rubber bullets, FN-303s and pepper spray against people. So we, um, we had a ton of video that we collected from that day, um, and we presented um, people, witnesses, people, Portlanders who were out protesting as live witnesses to the court who testified about what happened. We also had a ton of video. And from that day, the court ended up finding the city of Portland violation of its order not to use, not to use um, less lethal munitions against passively resisting protesters. Um, and I, I, 
forget the specific number. I think it was like six or eight viola specific violations that the court found from the video and the testimony. Um, and actually, all of the violations were caused by a single officer. It happened um, that it was Brent Taylor, um, who I think has the number 12. Uh, and people know him, um, you know, people on the ground, they start, they start recognizing the, the, the worst of, of the police officers out there, right? And so um, it, we could tell in the video that he was the one that um, it was, you know, through the video, through his testimony and through other people's testimony that it was obvious that um, I think all of the violations, um, except for maybe one, I'm not, I'm not entirely yeah. sure that they were all but the vast majority of them were caused by Brent Taylor. So um, recently, I think it was what it was this week, March 16th, the court finally issued um, a remedy. So they found the city in contempt of court after that hearing. And then they issued, um, Judge Hernandez, the, the judge issued an order saying that, you know, the officers have to do additional training. Um, Brent Taylor cannot um, be a part of policing for crowd control management purposes until um, he is investigated internally by the Portland police. And we can talk about that more, but um, he's off uh, protest duties for now. Um, and I mean, I think the most powerful thing about what the court did was um, it reminded them that, you know, the court is watching, the court has found your, your police force in violation and um, each officer has to certify to the court that they understand the court's order and they can articulate um, each time they use force, they have to be able, and each time means every pull of the less lethal weapon trigger. Um, they have to be able to articulate without speculating what danger and what threat that person that they're using it on um, is posing and they have to immediately write a report um, documenting that force. So. It's not what we asked for. We asked for a ban of the less lethal weapons. Um, we asked for, um, we asked to take Fred Taylor off of crowd control duties permanently. Um, you know, we asked for much more real substantive measures, but it's a first step. And I think the court um, essentially didn't want to go too far with the first <laughs> violation that it found. But if it keeps happening, I think we have even stronger ground for, for more substantive changes. And um, yeah, we were curious uh, and if you know what proving that understanding to the court by grenadiers and other uh, riot control officers, what, what does that look like? Is that a statement or a, a test? Yeah, so <clears throat> the city of Portland already has rules that say that anytime an officer uses force, um, whether it's during an arrest or during a protest, they have to write a separate report called a, a master after action report where um, they outline exactly what the force was, why, why they needed to use the force, um, and uh, why the person was presenting a threat and so they had to use this force and why it was the least the, and also the rules if you read them you can, they're all available online the police Portland police directives they say that 
you know, they can't use the highest level of force available. They have to, it has to be proportionate to the threat. Um, so that wasn't, that wasn't being done very well, you know, um, or I guess, you know, all of these reports were submitted to us and to the court and the court is just reminding them that, you know, we're watching you. So you need to be able to go, go back to your, to your, you know, uh, office or whatever and write the report like as it happens on that day right away and you have to be able to articulate that not later on when you're on the stand in court and you're watching the video um and this language actually comes there was an interesting moment in the hearing where um brent taylor was testifying about um protesters who were backing away and holding um a banner and the banner had i probably Black Lives Matter on it. Um, and the banner was made out of PVC pipes um, and just, you know, like banner material, like cloth or something. And um, you can see Brent Taylor start shooting the people holding the banner. Um, and the, you know, we were questioning him about what, what threat they were posing because these people are backing up. Um, I think some of them were on roller skates. Um, and he says, well, in past protests, you know, we've seen these signs reinforced with um, nails and, you know, hard material, and they've been used against officers, you know, and they're all, and we're questioning him, like, what about in this protest? Did you have any indication that you were dealing with any, anything dangerous here? And he couldn't. Of course he didn't, right? Because as you, you see in the video, the banner falls apart, and it's all just PVC pipes that falls apart as the officers take it. Um, and as they're taking it, Brent Taylor is shooting the person on the roller skates. Um, so that's where that comes from. So the officers can't use this type of speculative reasoning of like, oh, it could have been, you know, something. But they have to actually say, I saw this person doing X, Y, and Z. They were presenting a threat in that moment. So I had to use this amount of force. You mentioned that uh, Judge Hernandez balked. Uh, that's that I got his name right. Yeah. Right. Judge Hernandez balked at um, at putting in in in, a, in place your recommendations um, for this most recent contempt uh, ruling. But you said that you think that because it was the first, he was hesitant to go too harshly, but that if he continues to see this, these violations and this behavior that you think um, he, he might have a different heart about it. What do you think that's, what do you think that bodes, how do you think that bodes for um, the warm weather protest season that is rapidly, you know, coming upon us? Yeah, um, it's a good question. Um, so I think that there's a few things happening, which is that um, the city is learning from, from, from these hearings and from the fact that we're watching them. So we saw last week, I believe, the city started, started using a different strategy of cattling people. Um, so basically, um, this was you know, famously used in New York this past summer, but um, when they see a crowd of people and they want the protests to stop and disperse instead of um, just announcing it, after announcing it, I guess, they, they surround the group of people and don't let them leave. And before, they've done this before and they've tear gassed people as well. But in this recent incident, um, they ended up arresting people. They ended up photographing people and arresting. They ended up arresting 13 out of 100 people. Is what I read in the news. Um, 
and we're watching that. And I think that, you know, not getting ahead of myself, but we were talking about, right, that the officers have to have individualized reason to believe that people are posing a threat. So like, ask yourself, what, what circumstances can you say that each of the hundred people that you're surrounding that they're each posing a threat. It has to be a very specific type of thing that's happening. So that's a question. Um, but yeah, I think that, you know, keep us in mind if, if something happens out, out there and you're, um, you're a victim of police violence, you, um, you know, don't shoot Portland has a, um, intake form on their website and we're trying to get in contact with people, you know, we're, um, we don't have a ton of capacity because we're just like small law firms trying to do this. Um, but I think that if we move for contempt again, based on uh, a night or a few nights that, you know, we see them violating, especially following. Continue to violate the order. Right. But now that the court has spoken and has really emphasized, like, no, like we mean it, you need to be able to articulate what the threat is. Um, you know, as the protest season is upon us, I think that will be really important to watch and see how um, they change their tactics and whether or not they, you know, um, stop using the, the less lethal weapons as much and start kettling people. Um, but yeah, we're watching and so get in contact with us. And uh, just as far as the litigation that's still underway, um, what, uh, where, where is it at in the process right now? Yeah, so um, we, we are, um, we're like early on. Um, what happens is we have the right to a hearing on this case, meaning like, what we're ultimately asking the court for is a permanent injunction. So a permanent order from the court that the police shall not use tear gas and impact munitions um, on people who are not posing any kind of threat. Um, and in order to get there, we have to have eventually a hearing um, where we present evidence. And one of the mind boggling things about this case is that it is so huge there, you know, in a normal case, you're, you're talking about a small, like set of moments or even, or, or if it's taking if, if over a several years, even at least it's one or two or a couple people, this is like thousands of people over several years now. So, um, it's a challenge of how to present this evidence. So, you know, we can't, um, present everything or even close to it, um, a fraction of what all the violations are, but um, you know, we, at this contempt hearing, we used, um, we, we compiled the video with the help of a technology company in New York who volunteered their time for don't shoot Portland for the most part, or gave us a big discount because they believe in this mission, um, to create this compilation of, um, shots and videos that really show very clearly what happened in that protest, uh, with aerial footage. Um, so essentially, eventually we'll have a right to a hearing where it's our burden to prove that, you know, the, the judge should ban some of these weapons. Um, but before we get there, there's going to be a motion for summary judgment. So what that means is that the defendants say, judge, throw this case out. 
um, they can't prove it. You know, all of the all of the evidence that we have so far doesn't point to them being able to prove this. So the judge, you can just throw this out before this ever gets to a hearing. So that's like that's coming up for us, um, and then eventually we'll go to an evidentiary hearing unless there's a settlement. Um, I had sort of a side question, and I understand if you are running out of time. And um, oh, okay. I, I appreciate it. Um, the just with a sort of lay person's understanding of constitutional rights, um, I'm curious uh, why a violation isn't alleged under, for example, like cruel and unusual punishments or the due process of law clauses. Um, and I, I think you sort of got towards answering that by mentioning Graham versus Connor. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm just curious why the fourth and not um, other amendments as well. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, when I went to law school and I just, I started learning about the law, it's kind of, it doesn't, it doesn't really make any sense. What's written in the constitution is not really what the law is. What the law is, is um, a ton of judicial decisions. So like judges hearing the case, the case being appealed, the appeals court looking at the record and writing a decision about the law. And then maybe that's appealed to the Supreme Court on the state level and in the United States that eventually goes to the Supreme Court. So what we have in this country is like this huge system of legal precedent that the law is defined by. So what you read in the Constitution um, is not actually like you're not going to get a sense of what the law is unless you're able to read all these decisions and figure it out. And it's terrible that it's not accessible at all to people, right? Like you have to spend a ton of money to be able to understand and access it. Um, but the, the simple answer to that is that due process clause and Eighth Amendment actually don't really apply in this in this setting. Um, and that's that's been defined by the Supreme Court. Um, the Eighth Amendment we usually we use in confinement, so in prison and jails, um, we use the Eighth Amendment a lot to um, to say that the prison or jail didn't um, they were deliberately indifferent to the needs and um, medical needs or other needs of the prisoner. Um, so the Eighth Amendment is primarily used in that context. The due process clause has a ton of uses, uh, but the simple answer is it's just like not clear that it's really used here. It's more used with the court system, um, depriving people of rights or um, many different areas, but not here. Yeah, I, I know that the terminology of like um, summary justice kind of gets thrown around a lot with the responses to protests and I think um, yeah that's true that's sort of where my question yeah. came from but it that's a pretty uh, uh, yeah that that's not really informed by how the law actually works out yeah, but that's a very informed question I totally agree with you so like what you're saying is like you know, instead of shooting someone, why don't you arrest them, charge them with a crime, and then have them go through the system where, you know, they'll get their due process and maybe get punished, right? But instead, your summary, summary process, like, meaning, like, the officer just takes it into his own hands and uses the weapon as a punishment right there. So we're making that argument in our, in our lawsuit. 
but it's like to use the due process clause for that would be like kind of a novel argument. Yeah. I appreciate you explaining that. That helps a lot. Um, I think that we've had a couple of really graceful ending points at this point in the in the interview. I don't know how you feel, Sam, but um, I think that if uh, it's been lovely to talk to you, Vika, we really appreciate you making the time, um, especially on a Friday. <clears throat> and it's it's been we, Sam and I were both really looking forward to this conversation um, leading up to it, and it's been it's been really informative and and really helpful. So thanks, thank you so much for your time. Thank yeah. you. This is great. I'm so glad you all are doing this, you know. Thank you. And vice versa. Yeah, exactly. What what um radio station like does this air on? So, so go ahead, Sam. Oh, oh. I'll, I'll say. So we have a show called uh, Totality of Circumstances, which is a monthly um, show that looks at all things around community um, responses to policing and community reactions to policing in, in Portland. Um, and it is on KBU, which is the community radio station 90.7 FM. Okay, cool. And uh, all over the world at KBOO.FM. It's the, the other part of the lock out there. <laughs> Awesome. Well, it's a huge privilege um, to be able to speak about this stuff. You know, I, I, I think it as much as I can get the word out there, of course, on behalf of Don't Shoot Portland, but, um, you know, I'm living my dream, my dream job, life, <laughs> actually being, being able to use the law in these ways, which is really powerful. So thank you all for being interested in getting the word out. You mentioned that the that Don't You Portland has an intake form on their website. Is there anything else, any other way that you would uh, recommend that people get in touch with you if, if they feel like they have um, meaningful information? Yeah, um, you know, the to be honest, like the intake form, it, it it's there, but we're a small team of lawyers that are very busy, so. You know, you can also feel free to just call my office and like, or shoot us an email, Levy Merithew Horst. Um, so you can Google us, lmh.com, um, I think. Um, but yeah, so if you if you uh, if you send an email that way, then I'm gonna get it because I usually get routed all the protest related um, in, um, inquiries that come in. So. You know, you can also just uh, name me in the email. My name is Victoria um, or Vika. So, yeah, you can feel free to try to do that. Like, if you have something really important that you want to share, um, or I'm always going to try to call you back if I can. That's uh, great. Yeah. Uh, Vika, thank you so much for talking with us today. It's been thank great. You. Have a great weekend. Thanks. You, you too. too. Okay, bye bye. Bye.